Now let's listen to Stuart Albertson and Keith Davidson discuss the options and their recommended approach to this difficult problem. All right, welcome to the roundtable. I'm Stuart Albertson here. And I'm Keith Davidson. And we're glad you've hung around for the roundtable. This gives us a chance just to kind of ask Keith a few questions. He can ask me a few questions if he wants to about the hypothetical and the choices that were available. And so in this hypothetical, Keith, why don't you remind us just real quickly what the hypothetical was and what we're, what we're, we're thinking about doing from a, a choice standpoint. So this is a situation where you have a lawyer who unfortunately didn't really pay attention to the terms of the trust. And so there's times, you know, when people kind of take for granted that a trust is going to be amended the same way every other trust is going to be amended. And some trusts are different. And so this one had a very specific requirement in it that you had to have two signatures and that just didn't happen. And so the, the whole point of this uh, factual scenario is that it's pretty clear-cut malpractice. Not every case is that clear-cut, but this one, you know, you had to have two signatures, you only had one, there obviously was a mistake. And then the question is, well, what are you gonna do about that mistake? Because now the brother who has been disinherited, you know, he may have a lot of his own money, but to him, it's a matter of principle. He feels like he's being left out of his parents' love and affection by being cut out of the trust. And so obviously he's not gonna stand for that, so what do, what do the other children do? So uh, my thought then in addressing this for Pat and Linda was that uh, we would sue lawyer Bob for malpractice. And what are your thoughts on that choice? I think that's your only real recourse here because the fact of the matter is the trust amendment was not followed. So trying to enforce that trust amendment, you know, you can file to do that, but the chances of that happening are, are pretty much nil. You know, it's just not going to happen. Now, um, it's possible that maybe attorney Bob comes forward and tries to, you know, help by saying, well, I made a mistake, but this was the intent. And so then I guess the question is, if, if attorney Bob did that, would that allow the trust amendment to then be validated? But short of that, I think malpractice is about the only way that these two kids are going to recoup the loss that they've sustained because the attorney just forgot to get a second signature that he should have done and anybody should have seen that just by reading the trust terms. Well, and with uh, with attorney Bob, even if he were to come forward and say, you know, this is something that really should have been with two signatures, the problem we have with Ron here is that he's suffering from dementia, right? So how would the court even determine if that was Ron's intent? And even if Ron had mumbled something to lawyer Bob, it can, so can lawyer Bob really save the day here by coming into the court and falling on his sword? Probably not under this scenario, just because you do have to have two signatures and you only have the one, which is just a, it's a, it's a formality problem that you can't get around. And I think you're right. There's some issues about, well, would Ron have signed this? So if, even if you would put it in front of Ron, would he have signed it? What do you think? Do you think that attorney Bob can help out in this situation? No, because I think that Ron and Nancy made it clear by their intent that they wanted both of them to decide on amendments going forward. Who knows? Maybe Ron had some concerns about Nancy's judgment going forward or, or vice versa. And there's a reason that those terms are there. And we, pr we presume there's a reason that those terms are there. And so I don't think uh, attorney Bob could help out. Uh, the one thought I had was, uh, let's, let's, throw one more fact in that you didn't talk about, but let's assume that attorney Bob has a nice fat $1 million 
legal malpractice liability insurance policy, we both know how much insurance companies do not want to part with even a, a nickel in any type of litigation. What are the chances of when you fi file this lawsuit on behalf of Pat and Linda, what are the chances that you're going to get a policy limit of a million dollars from the insurance company for Pat and Linda. Are you gonna to have to take this one all the way to trial in front of a jury? Or is there a chance you're gonna do a few depositions and the case will settle? Boy, that's, I mean, you're gonna to have to fight. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you're not gonna file the claim and the insurance company is gonna to come to you and say, oh, this obviously was a mistake and we obviously owe you money and, and here's the million dollars. That's not gonna be the way it works out because no insurance company really does that. And so you're going to file and, you know, you're going to hear all sorts of crazy arguments from the defense attorney representing the insurance company saying things like, well, you didn't file in time, you blew the statute of limitations, which no matter when you file, they say that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it wasn't liability and this and that. Um, so you're going to hear all sorts of reasons why uh, attorney Bob's not liable. I think the thing that's more interesting from an insurance standpoint is an insurance bad faith type claim where you can make the demand to the uh, insurance company that they settle for the policy limits of a million dollars if that's what they are. And that's what the damages are theoretically in this case is a million dollars. If the insurance company has enough information to see that there's a likelihood that uh, there was damages of a million dollars and they choose not to settle the case then you can open up that policy and you can get damages above and beyond. I don't know what those would be in this case, but it's certainly something, a leverage point you can use with the insurance policy, uh, insurance company going forward. Would you agree with me though that these are some very strong facts for a claim for legal malpractice? They are, and, and the factual scenario was intentionally set up to have a very good, good claim for legal malpractice. And I'll tell you that a majority of the time you don't have facts that are this strong. So you'll have some other claim of what the lawyer did wrong, but a little, it'll be a little bit more fuzzy as to whether it was really wrong. Because keep in mind that to prove professional negligence, you have to show that the lawyer didn't act the way a reasonable lawyer would act in that community. So it's very subjective. It's, it's tied to the lawyer's community of practice. It's tied to what another reasonable attorney would do under those circumstances. It's not real easy to get your hands around what is and what isn't malpractice. It's not a black and white line most of the time. Except in this case, it was a little bit more of a black and white line because you needed two signatures, you got one, boom, end of story. That's kind of an easy one to, to figure out. You know, one, one fact, and I'll end with this question, but uh, one fact scenario I do see a lot of people call us about and say, hey, I've got the perfect legal malpractice case for you. The, my mom went to the lawyer, the lawyer drafted up the will or the trust, and it sat on the lawyer's desk for week after week after week, and the lawyer didn't call mom, and mom didn't come in and sign it, and now mom's dead, so that's legal malpractice. Is that legal malpractice? It's not. No, there's actually case law that says that you can't be, you can't hold an attorney liable for, for not getting something done quick enough. And the reason for that is, you don't, it's mere speculation as to whether or not mom would have signed that had it been given to her. So your assertion would be, well, she wanted this done and she would have signed it, but the lawyer didn't get it to her. But we don't know that she would have signed it. It's possible that the lawyer would have put it in front of her and she said, eh, you know what, I changed my mind. And so because of that speculation, it's just too hard to find liability for somebody not getting a document done fast enough. And plus, there's all sorts of different scenarios. Where do you draw the line? You know, somebody 
you know, dies the next day, you know, you didn't get a trust done in 24 hours. Is that liability? 48 hours, 72 hours? Where's the time frame? So the court just bypasses all of that and says you're not going to hold an attorney liable for that. Mm -hmm.